Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, David Keenan talks about his Gordon Byrne prize-winning novel, For the Good Times. David Keenan grew up in Airdrie in the late 1970s and early 1980s. He is the author of This Is Memorial Device, To Run Wild In It, A Handbook of Autonomic Tarot, and England's Hidden Reverse, A Secret History of the Esoteric Underworld. And his latest book, For the Good Times, has just recently won the 2019 Gordon Byrne Prize. David, welcome to Little Atoms. Well, thank you. Great to be here. How would you describe For the Good Times, first of all? It's, well... It's an attempt. I wanted to write something. The inspiration really came from the stories that my father and his brothers would tell about growing up in the Ardoin in Belfast during the Troubles. My father left, but his brother stayed behind, and I was always captivated by the way they would talk about the Troubles and these incredibly violent and difficult situations. But there was a sort of um, there was a belief in the power of storytelling to somehow there was a metaphysic to storytelling, and somehow it was capable of even redeeming suffering. They had such a faith in language that they could transform the situation simply by the retelling of it. So really, it's not a book about the Troubles per se. It does mention some of the big events of the Troubles, like um, the death of Bobby Sands on Hunger Strike. But I wanted it to be much more like a micro-history, you know, about four young men growing up in that and what it, and the kind of resilience it takes to survive that and also to catch that sort of belief that my dad and his brothers, who were illiterate, actually, but that incredible faith and belief that they still had in the transformative power of language. So it was kind of an attempt for me to bring these things together. Well, you mentioned that they were, you know, basically functionally illiterate, but as you've said, obviously doesn't mean that, you know, they didn't have a love of language and storytelling, and, and that is reflected in, in the language in which this Sammy, who is our narrator, who we'll talk about more in a minute, the way that he relates this story is obviously reflected in that. Oh, yes, completely. I mean, this was my big inspiration, that 
for a start, storytelling is, was very much uh, performative. It's very much a performance when these people would, would relay the stories. And so I wanted to capture the different ways they would perform it. And this is very much like a, sort of a very Irish thing as well. Um, you know, there would be moments of song. There would be moments of jokes. You know, there would be uh, sort of mythological tall tales that you were never sure whether they were actually true or not. And it began to occur to me that it sort of dovetailed with the literary traditions or the tradition of Irish modernism, which again is this faith in the play of language to be to somehow be affirmative or redemptive. And I began to see how the Irish joke in particular works on that sort of little um, border between high literary modernism and, and funny vernacular. So I did want to definitely play that up, the way that stories are performed and also the way that we play with language that modernism and folktellings have in common in Ireland. So let's talk about Sammy, who is our narrator. He is narrating the story, I guess, from a position in the, you know, after the events of the story and he's relating the story to another person. Whether or not we want to say too much about who that is, mm -hmm. I don't know, but he is basically telling this story to a to a third person. Yes, he is, and he's trying to come term, to terms with it himself. How reliable Sammy is on his facts all the way through, it's very hard to tell whether he's been played at some point. He has certainly been betrayed on several occasions as well. But again, he's struggling with his own way of accepting that. You know, I didn't want to write a very simple book. You know, people... Even in, some, even in some positive reviews and certainly in some events that I've done, people will say, well, it's really interesting because at the end of the book, you come down and you say that violence is bad, you know, violence is wrong. And like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't draw any conclusions in terms of that because I think, well, imagine spending two years writing a novel just to make the facile point that violence, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, that's, that's kind of mind-boggling to me. So I wanted to get a much more complex idea of what violence can do and also how, in Ireland, reality at that time was up, for, was up for grabs. And just through the extremity of violence, there was almost a sort of regression to a feeling of being in primal moments, of regressing in these primal human... This cosmological drama, this religious drama almost. And so... All the way through the book, there are uprising of archetypes, you know, the snake, the biblical idea of suffering, all these things. As if here on the streets of Belfast, through violence, we had regressed to some of the initial questions we want to ask ourselves as humans. And in a way, it's caught in this cycle. The book is structured like an Ouroboros. It's a snake that eats its own tail and we can't possibly escape it. Well, let's talk about that a bit more now, because, I mean, people would expect a book set in Northern Ireland in the 1970s to perhaps have some sort of religious overtones. But the occult features heavily in this book as well. And as you've just mentioned, the image of the snake. Tell me why you wanted to wanted to include that. Well, I thought the idea that reality was up for grabs back then. And in fact, there was various factions uh, battling to impose their reality. And this is a historical thing with Ireland and the Troubles all the time. There's all these competing historical narratives that are trying to sort of claim the high ground that become the definitive telling of the Troubles. And people, of course, are obsessed by history in Ireland, you know what I mean? And uh, so I wanted to capture this this few sort of uh, mutual tellings and also the magic of the word, you know, because again, I talk about this faith in the word. Well, it strikes me that people in Ireland, are, there's a sort of working class cabal there, as if you can just deliver the story in the best way possible, perform it in the best way, that somehow you make magic of it. 
your version of history becomes the triumphal one, the true telling. And there's this constant battle during the book just for someone to tell the true story. But at the same time, we don't really know what the true story is because all along the line, it seems that Sammy and his comrades have been played many, many times as well. And indeed, I mean, I'm talking about in reality here, not necessarily in fiction, but how can we even have a, as, you know, it's not that distant a past, how can we have a real true telling of what actually happened when there are still betrayals and, you know, people who don't want other people to know what their past might have been? All of this sort of complicates an actual truthful accounting of what happened. I don't think there can be a definitive account of the Troubles which is uh, non-fictional, mm. funnily enough. But my feeling was that fiction can perhaps get closer to what it actually felt like at the time. Because, you know, this is why I'm not very interested in writing novels that are social realist at all. There's a magical aspect to both of my books because I don't think a social realist telling is really what it felt like. I think the only way to get closer is using fiction and also having a little bit of distance. I'm not from Belfast myself, although I grew up surrounded by it, by the culture and the myth and the stories and the family that was involved in it. But I think even my distance as well has allowed me, perhaps, to have enough distance to be able to write about it. But also, there's a lot of stuff happening about the Troubles now, whether the new series on BBC, whether Anna Burns' Milkman, things like that. And I wonder, are we finally far enough away from it that we're able to engage with it artistically and it's telling? And I think we can. It's been remarkable. And one of the most remarkable things to me is the reaction to my book from both sides, not just from Republicans, but also from the loyalist community, which has been quite incredible. I mean, I have quite a few, I have correspondence with quite a few people who serve time in uh, Long Cash on the loyalist side who are fans of the book because it comes close to what it felt like. And I don't think it's a partisan book at all. It could just as well be a book about four young men joining the UVF. And it's difficult to talk about some of these things, but how exciting the troubles were for young men. Um, that incredible adolescent energy that people would channel into saying uh, music or art or football was also channeled into paramilitary activities because it was exciting. It was exciting to see the British army on the streets. It was exciting to see yourself on the news every night, just as working class families were first becoming to uh, own televisions. They were watching John Wayne one minute and they were watching people who lived on their street the next. So I latched on to this idea of performance, of how history itself is performed. And I wanted to capture that feel of how it actually felt. And I think sometimes fiction can get us, by, by, by using aspects that never happened, we can get closer to what did happen. And that's been a strategy that I use for both of my first novels. Let's um, take a, a closer look at Sammy. Tell us who he is. Sammy is um, a young man grown up in Belfast who's sort of seduced into joining the IRA. He's not particularly ideological and he comes from a sort of older generation, a slightly kind of like a gangster, a suave gangster background who kind of sees membership of the IRA as a sort of a, a kind of a cool thing. It's something that gets some sort of street cred and also something that permits uh, free reign criminality. But he runs up against a younger, another factor of the IRA that are increasingly becoming ideological, that are becoming socialist as well. And he sort of runs up against this. But one of the key things the book talks about is fathers and sons, because Sammy and uh, his family and uh, Tommy's family seem to have been involved 
than the IRA themselves. And it's kind of like how these father and son cycles are very hard to, they're very hard to break. So it's cycles of violence, but it's also how violence is often performed for the benefit of other men in a sort of battle of masculinity. And all the way through the book, Sammy's kind of challenged by Tommy, for a start, who seems to be suaver, sharper, more violent, perhaps, as well. And it becomes this competition between the men to see who's capable of being the most violently masculine because masculinity is often a performance for other men. And in the book, all the men who are coming together, Sammy, Barney, not to a certain degree, but with Tommy and Pat, are kind of competing with each other in terms of the, the, the stake, the high stakes of violent masculinity. You mentioned how they're, you know, they're, they're not necessarily necessarily in it for the politics. The attraction of, you know, being in being in a gang and also all the other things that you talked about, like the popular culture, you talk about the music of the times in the book, it all sort of crosses over into this sort of group identity and the sort of solidarity of being friends. And mm-hmm. the fact that all of these guys, they really care about what they look like, you know, they, they're really sort of like snappy yep. dressers as well. Well, I mean, they all look up to Perry Como, and Perry Como sort of holds up a sort of dissonant mirror to sort of everything that they're not, but everything that they aspire to. And they, in a way, Perry Como is kind of his performance of masculinity is kind of perfect for these guys, and they kind of accept that they'll never really live up to it because, of course, they, they, Perry Como becomes this myth, this kind of clean living myth. You know that, like, like he's a good Catholic. Like they all have like, these things where, like, Como never, Como never swore. Como never took a drink. Como was always faithful to his wife. And of course, these bubbles are progressively popped as they go through. Even about Como, after somebody waits to see him drunk on stage at the Kelvin Hall in Glasgow during a performance. But I just wanted to show these are all different ways of people trying to raise themselves above their circumstances. And I think there's something beautiful about it and that kids like that are able to be resilient, are able to care about what they look like, even in a war zone. Because I'm not interested in mere critique. I don't consider that particularly artful and I don't think that's what makes great literature. I think the enchanting of reality as it is, as opposed to a mere critique of its terms, is what I'm interested in doing in literature. And I think the best art, the best literature does that, transforms reality as it is, rather than merely critiques it. And I saw in the actions of these boys even, that transform of celebration, that making magic of even a difficult situation. And that's what I wanted to bring. And that's why I used a sort of magic realist rather than a social realist approach to it. Because I want to say the potential for transforming your reality, for affirming your existence is there no matter what. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to David Keenan. And we're talking today about his Gordon Byrne Prize winning novel, For the Good Times. And David, I want to talk a bit more about, you mentioned you know, the talk about a sort of like magical realism effect in the book, mm-hmm. uh, rather than a sort of, you know, social realistic depiction. But the book is, I mean, it is incredibly violent in places. And I wanted to talk about, you know, writing that violence, both in terms of I mean, I guess the way that you you make these people who are murderers sympathetic, you know, the way that they sort of slide into that life and take us along with it. But also at the same time, you know, the way that you use that other register, which I guess there's a a part in the book where the guys basically kidnap a woman whose husband runs a comic shop because he, he owes money basically to the IRA. And once they've taken over this comic shop, the book slips into... I mean, I guess a sort of superhero depiction of, you know, these guys thinking themselves in terms of of superheroes. And and, and I wanted to talk about basically, you know, writing the violence in that register. It is an incredibly violent book, and it's much more violent than I remember it being when I read it back. Um, But one of the big motivations was I remember when I would watch the news with my father and there would be some Republican terrorist atrocity on the news, and uh, he was always able to brush it off. He didn't seem to have any moral qualms about violence when it was done by the IRA or, or, or on the Republican side, and he would justify it by simply shrugging and saying, well, there's a war on, and that's what happens in a war. There are casualties and we respond. And I found it very, very difficult to uh, come to terms with that. And then when there was the, the, the ISIS attack on the Ariana Grande Uh, a concert. I mean, that, to me, that's still one of the absolutely most traumatising news events I can remember. I still can't quite get over it, especially targeting young girls discovering pop music and their own sexuality. And I believe that childhood should be a place that should be free of all these kind of ways. And and I thought to myself, you know, the people that committed that terrible atrocity are seen as heroes to in certain parts of their own community, just in the same way that my father could see intense Republican violence as heroic. So I wanted to attempt to write a book to show how you can be seduced by these men who, yes, one aspect of them is absolutely sociopathic, cold-blooded killers. 
they did violence to so many families, to um, so many people's lives, and yet you fought for them, yet you're seduced by them. I mean, I, I mean, one of the characters, two of the characters die in the book, that's some two of the main characters at some point, and um, I am still moved when I read the part where they die. I cry, I feel sad, I miss them, and I understand the sadness of the other people in the book there. But I thought to myself, I want to show how it is possible to be seduced by these people completely. And also, I wanted to show people who were capable of an incredible dark side, were capable of violence and murder, and I wanted to show them as human beings, as people who were also capable of love, as also people who had families, because I don't think there's a single damn one of us that does not have that shadow side and that would not be capable of violence if they were a member of the right tribe, they were done enough violence to them and the tribe gave them permission to respond violently. I don't believe there's a single one of us that can't do that. So the idea of showing violence in a way which was simply damning it, well, that just seems simple-minded to me. And it wasn't something I was interested in doing in the book. I wanted to show the seduction and the excitement of violence. But you know what? One of the interesting things is I invented so much torture, so many torturous things, so many violent scenarios. I would sit and think up the craziest thing I could think up, the craziest violent attack, and I did enjoy doing it. Just the same way that I enjoy watching, you know, a Scorsese movie or anything like that, or The Sopranos. I enjoyed that level of violence as well. Now, I don't do a lot of research. One of the things that when I was doing, I don't believe in research when you're writing a novel. I believe when you're writing a novel, research gets in the way of inventing. So I deliberately did not read a lot of factual books about the troubles reading up to this. I had in the past because I've always been interested in it. But I wanted to much more go on the oral tellings, on the accounts that came on from my family, on what I remembered and on what I imagined. But in the wake of publishing the book, what I've done now is I've let myself read a lot of books about the troubles. And I'm happy with what I did with the book, I think. I haven't read anything that made me contradict it but at the same time when I read things like say um, a book about the Shank, the Shankill Butchers and you and you read about the violence that they perpetrated you realise that you know reality will almost always outstrip fiction even the wildest thing that you can dream up reality will outstrip that and the absolute violence of the Shankill Butchers actually outstrips anything that I dreamt up in my fantasies of violence and for the good times which is jaw dropping at the risk of, of making this book sound like it is an exploration of masculinity and violence, but I want to talk about Kathy, um, the woman who is who is kidnapped by by the gang, and then you know basically there's a well we won't go into what what happens, but Sammy yeah. basically falls in love with her. Tell us something about Kathy. She's a brilliant character. I like Kathy a lot. Well, one of the things about Kathy is that at first she does seem to be a victim. You know, she doesn't even seem to be unsympathetic to the Republican cause at all. But at first, she does seem to be a victim. She is definitely, she is treated very, very badly. But she's funny and she's got a mouth on her as well. So she she gives her captors as good as she gets. But later on, she re-enters the story in a slightly different role. And as we go through, I think everything, all the various centres in the book start, they, they stop holding. They start coming loose a little bit. And we start to wonder, well, how much is Kathy in on this? What is happening in the background? How much is she manipulating things and manipulating things psychologically as well? Because there was one section which I really like where Sammy seems to be having a phantom conversation with uh, Kathy. And the conversation seems to round on Kathy challenging his masculinity, you know, that he wasn't violent, he wasn't dangerous enough. He, he was not judged to be a danger. And 
is Sammy responding to his fantasy? You know, because on the one hand, Kathy does occupy the realm of fantasy female for these guys, but in the certain, you start to wonder, well, is she manipulating the whole thing in the first place? Who is playing who? How much is Special Branch involved in this? Is this a honey trap, basically? And we never really know. And you know what? I don't know for sure. One of the things I like about my books, I talk about not doing research, but what I also do is I let the characters act the way they want to act. I always think that, you know, if you knew your characters perfectly or you understood their motivations, which they always talk about, if you're if they're on, on the omnipotent author, you really should. Well, I think, well, if you really do, you're nothing but a puppet master and you're manipulating puppets. For me, these characters were real. Kathy was real. And the comic shop scenario was real and it kind of got out of hand as I was writing it and it took on very much its own momentum and at the end of the book I'm still not 100% sure of what actually happened of who was playing who of what happened really in certain sections of those books because after all we're only really going on Sammy's telling of it and there was inevitably a, a sort of myth making part of that and also making him look good Anyway, so to me, yeah, Kathy is a character that's very, very real, as they all are. I feel very invested in their stories, but I'm still not entirely sure of what happened. I mean, I have my theories, but I think anyone else's theory of what took place in that book is, is valid in mine. We talked in the first half about, you know, both the Irish storytelling tradition, its influence on this book, and also, therefore, you know, that's the relatedness of, you know, high Irish modernism. What other writers were perhaps an influence on the style of this book? Well, I consciously did not read fiction about uh, the Troubles. Um, I consciously did not, just like in my, when I was writing my, my first book, I didn't read a lot of contemporary Scottish literature. And I didn't read a lot of contemporary Irish literature because I did not want my voice to be influenced by the ways that were already established for, for maybe fiction dealing with the troubles. Just like when I wrote my first book, this is Memorial Device, I did not want to fall in any established voice for how we wrote about working class communities in Scotland. So, um, I mean, my favourite authors and authors who influenced me perhaps on this book are probably influences that you wouldn't really be able to see uh, directly. People like uh, Clarice Lispector, because I think she's one of the great religious writers and great modernists, and she's also obsessed by uh, uh, language, where, where words end and where they become the symbol of themselves. I became very interested in that and the way that syntax sometimes collapses in sentences or you move into sort of um, hallucinatory tellings. And also, one of my big things is energy. How do you how do you transmit? energy you know and i wanted my book to be incredibly fast-paced to have the energy and the excitement and the anything that could happen feel of um, uh, what was happening during the troubles and for me i'm a fan of sort of early modern modernist writers but especially people like uh blaze sendrars a book called more of a gene i mean i think the energy that blaze sendrars had was one of the transformative influences for wanting me to um become a writer because he's able to transmit energy. So I think between those two, the energy of Sendrars and the, the, the sort of uh, wordplay of uh, Claris, Claris Lispector, and also Beckett, and uh, certainly also Joyce. I mean, there was a section in the book which quite deliberately plays with the ending of uh, um, Joyce's The Dead, um, from Dubliners, which is where uh, Sammy is uh, arrested by the Brits and he sort of floats up over their doing as this kind of Christ-like figure. And it seems what he does is, you know, in the, in the dead, the snow falling down on the dead and the living. Well, and for the good things, what happens is 
as he's been strangled and taken into the back of a Land Rover, he starts to hallucinate himself, rising up over the Ardoin as it's snowing, but he pisses himself. He pisses himself, and this little piss of yellow raindrops replaces the snow in Joyce's Dubliners. So, yeah, I was interested in quite overtly uh, referencing modernism, particularly Irish modernism, and uh, tying it up with uh, vernacular tellings. There's also references to people like Lawrence and things like that in there, because, again, that's the attempt of, of, of trying to create that common ground between, uh, you know, uh, literary modernity and Irish jokes, you know? Just one more question then, and then I'll get you to, to read a bit of For the Good Times, if you would. There's a lot of book prizes out there, but the Gordon Byrne Prize is, is one that definitely seems to have a, a special place in, in the heart of a lot of writers that I know, and I wanted to know what it means to you to win it. Absolutely everything. It's the central award that I dreamt of uh, winning. You know, my first book, this is Memorial Device, made the shortlist for it. And um, I'm a huge fan of uh, Gordon and his writing. And I think we have a lot in common in the way that I think what Gordon did was he took a lot of working class culture seriously. And his project was very similar to mine in that I think what he wanted to do was he wanted to re-enchant these things. He wanted, he saw the potential for magic in something like Snooker. You know, I what his book, uh, Pocket Money, I absolutely love. It's a magic and poetical sort of uh, uh, meditation on a very working class sport. So a huge fan of Gordon Byrne and it meant so much. It also means so much to me because I think the long list Never mind the shortlist, I thought even the long list was absolutely amazing. People in there that I absolutely loved, like uh, like your man McNamee and uh, Wendy Erskine. So, um, yeah, to be amongst all those uh, incredible writers was a dream, and to win it was, it, well, it, it meant everything to me. It was really, really incredible and, and completely unexpected. Can I get you to read us a bit then? Yeah, I'll read you a little section. This is a section that I do love to read because when I talked about my style being sort of performative and I wanted at points the the text to sort of devolve or evolve into music, anyway, sort of musicality. And there are definitely sections that, that can be sung, that can be performed in, in that kind of way. So this section where... Uh, Tommy and Sammy are on the run and end up in London, hiding out with an IRA cell, which is led by a guy called the Swan. This is a section where I try to sort of where it starts to devolve or evolve into sort of um, a musical cadence and also a biblical cadence. I love biblical cadence. I love the way the Bible's written. I'm very interested in in Jewish Kabbalah as well. I love that cadence, and that's perhaps another. Uh, big influence on uh, For the Good Times. So here, this is an example of a section where I try to combine those cadences. Swan's mate for life. Do you realise that, son? That's how the swan gets his name. The eyes of a swan are inscrutable. This is what this cunt I'm playing pool with says to me. Inscrutable. Cunt name a blackie. Must have been six foot two. The eyes of a swan, he says to me, are as black as hell's gates. The swan's partner is killed in action. That's all he says to me. None of the specifics. But he has been faithful ever since, he says. By this point, the swan is half-blocked and has his arm around Tommy and is singing in his ear. I catch a line of it. An old Irish folk song about a widowed swan looking back across its life and recalling the still faraway locks that it had sailed over with its long-lost partner, the great flowing rivers that were a part of them. And that delivered them to the future. The green Irish fields down there, beneath the two of them. 
other swans in Belfast, Blackie says to me, and everything feels like it is in code being a swan. A swan in Belfast. The swan is on his feet now. I dreamt I was a swan, he's singing, floating on the tide, his long-ago partner and himself, past long-abandoned mansions, like up on the Malone Road, all overgrown with trees and misty wet with rain, and with thick vines hanging down. And there was another sort of bird living in this song, a bird that moved to greet the swans, all in this song where they have been expected for such a long time. And they're led along a path in the shadow of tall fir trees. And isn't it a pity? Isn't it a shame? Of course it's tragic. Of course it is strange. Because we're swans, he sings, to the whole room now. And what do swans need with a mansion? With a house, with a butler and a maid? And the swans are led into a library. A library all piled high with books. And the swans look around and in every shelf they see. There was everything they could have dreamt of reading. Stories of all their friends as they were growing up. The memories of their parents as little birds themselves. Birds themselves. Birds themselves. He descended down the scale. Poems by their brothers and sisters. Bird poems. Poems by yonkers. Accounts of the uprising of grandfathers. The rising up of old swans. And the things that happened in the moment of them. The moment of them, the moment of them, he shakes his head as he declaims, and the swans, this pair, they turn to each other, these beautiful black-eyed birds, and it's like a joke to them, terrible, sad joke, that they were born swans, and had no way of making sense of any of it, for swans cannot read, I says to my lover, and this is the swan singing now, and my lover looks back at me, with those eyes of his, those eyes of his as he sings. And my lover, he asks me whether one day when he passes, maybe he could be turned into a book, but I won't be able to read it, my lover, my long lost. I won't be able to read you, my dear, as house sings the swan in return. Back in the flat in Kenny's town, Tommy's chest rising and falling, the side of his face, and the light of cigarettes next to me, on the floor, in the dark, I'm imagining us landing on water together and how it is soft between our legs, 1977, and how we sail off silent and without a thought. So I've been talking to David Keenan. We've been talking about his second novel, For the Good Times, which is out now in the UK from Faber. David, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about it. Thank you so much, Neil. I really enjoyed it. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.